Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. On June 21, 2019, the largest oil refinery on the east coast of the United States blew up. The blast released thousands of pounds of toxic hydrogen fluoride gas into the surrounding Philadelphia air and launched bus-sized debris across the neighboring Schuylkill River. Through sheer luck, the dissipating effect of winds on toxic gases, and thanks to the clear-headed emergency action of refinery operators, no one was seriously injured in the moments following the blast. Yet many in the city point out that the refinery leaves behind a legacy of health impacts, including elevated asthma rates in the densely populated neighborhoods that surround the site. The refinery also leaves a vast patch of urban landscape that is so toxic that it's doubtful that it can ever be used for residential development. In the months following the explosion, the city, its residents, and business interests jockeyed over the site's fate. Proposals were floated to repurpose the site as a logistics hub, return it to its natural state as a tidal marshland, and even to repair and reopen the damaged refinery itself. Yet the decision on what to do with the site would ultimately be made within the walls of a Delaware bankruptcy court, where the priorities of the refinery's creditors would take precedence. On January 22nd, the waiting came to an end. The court announced that a Chicago-based real estate company had agreed to purchase the Philadelphia Energy Solutions refinery for $240 million. The buyer has not yet announced a detailed vision for the site, but has a history of redeveloping industrial locations for less polluting uses. It's also important to note that the losing bidders aren't looking to go quietly, and there may be more drama to come. Here to talk about the sale of Philadelphia Energy Solutions and what the future may hold for the city of Philadelphia is my guest, Dr. Mark Allen Hughes. Mark is the director of the Climate Center for Energy Policy and was formerly the founding sustainability manager for the city of Philadelphia. In recent months, Mark was involved in a series of six public meetings convened by the city to discuss the future of the refinery. Mark, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Andy. It's nice to see you outside the office and in the studio. Good to see you, too. So the Philadelphia Energy Solutions Refinery dates back 150 years. It has been a major employer in Philadelphia, and its footprint is simply huge at 1,300 acres. That's significantly more significantly larger than Central Park in New York City. Give us a brief overview, if you will, of the refinery's role in the city. Happy to. Uh, You know, as many of your listeners will know, oil was first discovered and extracted and processed uh, as an energy source in the state of Pennsylvania. It was in the western part of the state. It was around the time that the railroads were starting to emerge as a dominant force in the U.S. economy and preeminently in the state of Pennsylvania. And the Pennsylvania Railroad uh, became one of the uh, key carriers of that new energy source from the western part of the state to the state's primary distribution port, the city of Philadelphia. Um, There were some early refining activities that were much closer to the historic center of the city, but in the 1860s, a uh, new refinery, much larger than any previous one, was located on what was the boondocks of the city, far from the city's residences and small factories of the middle of the 19th century, Uh, in a tidal marshland area near the confluence of the Schuylkill and Delaware Rivers. Uh, That refinery grew into a much larger refining complex over the the following 150 years, 
until today. It is actually, as you noted, larger than Central Park and also larger than Philadelphia's Central Business District uh, by quite a few acres. Uh, so it's larger than the historic center of the city. It's larger than the current Central Business District. It's downriver from four universities uh, Four hospitals, about 80,000 jobs that are all defining the future of the life sciences and IT, kind of slightly up the river. So it's this wonderful juxtaposition now of a very old legacy industry that has played a very dominant role in the state of Pennsylvania's history and the kind of new cutting edge kinds of employment and research activities that are happening that will define the next century. And it's really unique because, as you said, it's in the center of a very densely populated city. That's right. Once it was once, you know, far away from all that. And now it is surrounded by really nestled in uh, residential neighborhoods, the airport, our port, our seaport, the three stadiums. You know, there's, it's surrounded by the metropolitan And when you area. drive by 995, you can't help but notice it. That's right. So in recent years, the refinery has struggled to make a profit. In fact, the refinery came out of bankruptcy just about a year before last summer's explosion. Why had the refinery uh, struggled financially? Well, for a variety of reasons, uh, starting with simply its age and it's kind of very constricted. On the one hand, it's close to a bunch of different distribution infrastructure and elements and so on, but it also is in the center of a very congested uh, metropolitan area. It also has a technology that was very specific to a certain kind of crude oil, light, so-called light-sweet crude oil, which was is a kind of more expensive, more expensive raw product, um, as uh, was unable to kind of compete with other gasoline refineries, in particular with other grades of crude oil. It was also uh, in more recent years. It, there was a there was a combination of influences that made it kind of almost momentarily profitable in the last five years. It had to do with the the uh, lack of pipelines that would carry a new source of that particular kind of oil, the Bakken shale fields, um, there were no pipeline connections between that new source and the uh, petrochemical facilities on the U.S. Gulf Coast. Um, and therefore, the uh, kind of easiest, most economic connection uh, for that new source of supply was to take the, use the railways, again, as it was 150 years ago, uh, connections to Philadelphia. And so, and there was really nowhere else for that to go for a, quite a long time. So there was kind of a magic set of circumstances that for a few years made it profitable again. But those pipelines have opened. The U.S. export ban on crude oil uh, has been lifted. So a lot of the things that helped really kind of kept the refinery on a kind of life support uh, in this century have all disappeared. So the refinery lost access to that cheap Bakken crude, essentially, that's is what right. you're saying. It kind of lost the monopsony on that, on that, on that crude. So, so now uh, it's, had, it's been in bankruptcy twice in uh, the last, eight, uh, the last uh, eight years. And so uh, it really has struggled under these changing kind of market fundamental conditions. Now, the refinery exploded last June when a corroded pipe that held toxic gases burst. Over the following months, there was extensive discussion over what to do with the site. Tell us about some of the options that were proposed. Uh, yes, the mayor very quickly and I think wisely uh, constituted a set of 
advisors drawn from a bunch of different constituencies and expertises across the city. So about two dozen people were asked to kind of come together and not advise the city so much as organize uh, a set of public meetings that you already have referred to that would give voice to those different constituencies and interests and expertises. So there were uh, a number of people from the business community, from the neighboring communities, from the scientific community, and so on, the labor, uh, that gathered together in these series of meetings and brought forth a whole variety of uh, different kinds of options and ideas. And also, very helpfully, uh, in addition to kind of alternative visions of the the city, um, but mostly there was a discussion of very difficult to reconcile wants for the future, these options that you've asked about. And those, those wants really ranged from largely the incumbent workers, about 1,100 or so, who had been very abruptly and, you know, pretty roughly treated by the owner of the refinery, PES, Philadelphia Energy Solutions, fairly abruptly laid off. Right? So you had in these community meetings, you would have rooms that would have one or 200 workers from that community of workers that had been laid off very abruptly with real questions hovering over how long their health benefits would last, whether that they would be able to go back to work. And for that constituency, the vision, the hope was really very much about turn the operating units at the refinery back on. On the other end, you had representatives of fence-line neighborhood communities whose grandparents and children have suffered with respiratory and other kinds of illnesses that are associated, as the research fairly strongly shows, uh, you know, it's always hard to establish causality, but proximate residents of refining uh, operations have higher incidence levels of respiratory illness like asthma and so on. So for those constituencies, the vision, the want, the hope of what to do with this site, now idled, now shuttered, then bankrupt, uh, was that it be converted to some other kind of use. And, you know, there were a variety of visions for that. But that was like the range, right? Turn it back on. Let us go back to where we were the day before the incident. Uh, and never go back and try something completely different. Now, the city seemed to be in favor of a cleaner future for the site, but it had to navigate competing demands, as you've, as you've mentioned. Uh, one, the desire to reopen the refinery and preserve those jobs. On the other side, you had issues of environmental justice, and obviously the site provided quite a bit of tax revenue to the city as well. What was the city's stand? So the city uh, issued actually a report that's available on the philadelphia.gov website that I think is excellent. They gathered a lot of input from a lot of sources and really produced a very fine, you know, as somebody who's in the business of producing reports, uh, produced a very fine report. I read it. It was great. Yeah, it's really terrific. Um, And uh, in that, a vision actually emerges of what they would prefer to see at the site. There's a lot of, you know, appropriate kind of caution, maybe even reticence about the jurisdiction that the city has over a private parcel, especially a parcel of the bankruptcy process and so on. But given all of that, the city actually states a fairly clear-eyed vision that, you know, they have 
uh, promulgated over the last decade a set of increasingly ambitious goals on a bunch of related policy domains like greenhouse gas reduction, for example. You know, they've signed on to the 80 by 50 commitment. They have a whole series of both planning and capital investment initiatives that has to do with the energy performance of their buildings as a way of helping to mitigate the city government's emissions footprint and so on. They also have environmental justice uh, commitments and policy goals that have been passed by ordinance and, and you know enforced by regulation that have to do with environmental toxins and lead paint and you know a bunch of different issues related to public health around this and we can go on and on workforce development about you know training people for jobs for the future that are sustainable jobs that actually support families and so on so the city has a lot of goals and a lot of financial investment on the line. And they've basically asked that the use of the site be consistent with that those various policy statements, right? So that yes, the the they prefer they prefer a, a use of the site in the coming decades that is cleaner, that is healthier, that is more productive, that is more inclusive of the employment opportunities that are available on that site and so on. So it was a fairly rigorous vision. And in the end, frankly, they asserted, you know, some sense of jurisdiction around that. The city can control the land use activities inside its boundaries to some extent. It can certainly regulate them and through zoning and occupancy permitting and so on, inspections. So there's actually quite a few tools in the toolkit for a city like Philadelphia to have a say uh, about how much they want the vision. So they've, they had stated that vision well before the uh, bankruptcy auction process that your introduction mentioned. So the auction results were released on January the 22nd, which is just about a week ago today. We're recording on January the 29th. Hillco Redevelopment Partners, which is a company that has a history of buying and repurposing industrial sites, agreed to purchase the refinery and the site for $240 million. Given the spectrum of possible auction outcomes, how does this one rate? Uh, given that spectrum, which again range from proposals to essentially reopen the refinery with perhaps a little uh, biofuel or other kinds of blending activities, essentially reopen the refinery largely uh, status quo ante, uh, all the way through to um, – uh, proposals that uh, stepped completely away from from that. We have something of a uh, middle ground in the Hillco winning bid. It is, you know, they are a real estate holding and development company. They specialize in the acquisition. Actually, today they increasingly focus on the acquisition of uh, brown industrial sites, often in the energy or power sector, uh, and repurpose those sites to uh, often non-energy uses. It really comes out of that tradition that um, that Hillco has has uh, lived in for decades, really, um, about kind of acquiring. You know, they acquire an old department store chain, and they know exactly how to liquidate its uh, current inventory and stock, and how to convert its real estate into more productive uses and so on. And they have articulated a vision a little bit publicly and a little bit, as has been reported in conversation to the city, with the city, um, about a similar kind of vision for the site. It will probably uh, take uh, some time first to remediate the site and prepare it in other ways for market. It'll probably be done in a series of deals rather than one large kind of vision. Um, there's uh, 
they've stated a kind of a lack of interest in reopening the refining operations. Um, that might suggest that they would uh, think about dismantling some of the equipment and possibly selling it for either reuse or for scrap. Um, and so, you know, there's there's a lot of kind of things to be filled in, but the basic vision seems to be one of this is 1,300 acres. It is in various degrees of dirty, very dirty to dirty, uh, remediable to perhaps not even remediable, at least uh, economically, for some time, uh, that over a period of decades is going to be repurposed to a lot of different kinds of activities. So I would say that, you know, from from the the range of things that had to both have market viability, generate enough investor activity that it could actually win the bid, uh, basically consistent with the city's preferred vision of a cleaner use of the site, the city probably did just about as well in this, in this auction process as the city could have hoped for. Now, I'd like to note that the outcome of the auction won't be final until February the 6th. That's when the bankruptcy court is scheduled to issue its final ruling on the deal. And along these lines, I'd like to note that yesterday on January 28th, an article appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer, that's the local newspaper, reporting that backers of a losing bid for the refinery have solicited the help of the Trump administration in an effort to pressure the bankruptcy court to reconsider the auction result. The losing bid proposes to reopen the refinery and its backers, which include local union leaders, have met with Trump's assistant for trade and manufacturing policy, that's Peter Navarro, to push their case. So, Mark, how seriously should we take this scenario? Well, that's a very interesting question. Let me start, let me start with this. Uh, this really is hot off the, hot off the presses. Uh, I am happy to say I only know what I read in the newspaper about what's happening. But what we have all read uh, in today's newspaper about this is, is a little troubling for a, a number of reasons. And, and let me spend some time on this. As you can imagine, these bankruptcy court proceedings get very complicated very fast. And I don't want to bore you since you're looking right at me and I don't want to bore any listeners. So, uh, but, but let me try to give a little sketch on this, right? So, so yes, the, the, we have learned since the auction closed that the Hilco bid of $240 million, uh, was the second highest bid. Uh, it was the, this, um, this competing bid, this competing finalist bid, uh, was, uh, $25 million higher, about 10% higher. Um, uh, the PES, the, the, the bankrupt company, chose Hilco. So that'll be important to the story, right? It's not that the city chose Hil- Hilco. It's not that the bankruptcy court judge chose Hilco. The bankrupt company, the refinery, uh, chose the Hilco bid um, to satisfy their creditors and other obligations. Uh, the unsecured creditors, uh, who represent a number of, you know, not the investors who in effect own pieces of the refinery, but other people who have invested or loaned money to the operations of the refinery over the years, and these are these do include several of the unions that uh, work at once worked at the refinery site. Uh, the law firm that represents those uncredited, uh, unsecured um, creditors uh, has requested. The judge has sued. The, has asked the judge to not approve 
PES's selection of the winning Hilco bid. It's interesting, uh, kind of extraordinary. Um, and it has been reported both in the paper and as well as uh, in the suit and in many of the uh, quotes uh, from uh, representatives of these unsecured creditors who have asked that IRG, this losing bidder, uh, be reconsidered, uh, that the agenda here is to reopen the refinery. That's absolutely what this is about. Uh, it would be, I think, um, a, a a real red herring to to think that this is about, oh, they didn't pick the highest bid. Uh, this is about somebody who sees the ultimate value of that site as repurposing it as real estate in an extraordinarily high-value location, close to the seaport, close to the airport, close to two interstate highways, uh, close to downtown Philadelphia, with a large variety of possible reuses, someone who sees that vision that sounds like it's got legs, versus someone who's proposing to reopen a refinery that has gone bankrupt twice in the last decade, whose future is very uncertain, and the jobs at which would be unlikely to last much longer than it takes investors to pull a few hundred million dollars of profit out of the operations, just like they did after 2012. So, you know, there's that's that's what this is really about. It's about opening, reopening the refinery, and because it's about that, it forces us to revisit a number of the issues that your readers, probably unlike most Philadelphians at this point, many of your readers may be unfamiliar with uh, some of the facts about those ref- that very refinery operation that we thought were long settled, especially after the auction closed last week. The refinery is the single largest point source of greenhouse gas gas emissions in the city. It's the eighth largest in the state of Pennsylvania. It accounts for 20% of the greenhouse gas emissions annually inside the city of Philadelphia. It is by far the largest point source emitter of toxic air pollutants in the city, accounting for 56% of the toxic pollutants, the criterion pollutants that are emitted inside the city. It's, it is huge. It is a huge economic, environmental, and uh, public health burden on the city. Economic because of the roller coasters of bankruptcies and starts and stops and lost pension benefits and so on. A uh, lot of profit taking, but it has been bad for workers and very bad for the, both the emissions and the environmental health profile of the city. Uh, and that's what is being proposed to reopen at this point. Um, I could say a lot more about this. Um, I, I would, let me just let me say one more thing, which is that the uh, you know a lot of these discussions, and you mentioned you know again as reported, uh, a series of conversations between some of the some of the backers of this failed IRG. Um, bid, which now includes not only the original IRG bid, but one of the previous PES CEOs of the refinery, who uh, has now joined forces with IRG, 
Um, and together now they have really amped up the arguments for reopening the refinery, that that's very much what this proposal is, is, is really all about. And, and part of the discussion about the request for influence from the Trump administration um, has made there has been mention made about you know one of these days EPA is going to have to approve the permitting of any use at that site the cleanup of the site the cleanup of the site and you know it's a little incoherent some of these arguments but you know they're raising the specter of the regulatory powers of the EPA as being in the service of helping one bidder over another bidder potentially for political reasons. Uh, there's been mention in these conversations uh, in the paper today about political contributions being offered and withheld and lots of, lots of you know, dirty political kind of discussion. But there's another more technical aspect of this too, which is that um, some of the pro-refinery advocates have said that site is so, so contaminated, it is going to take millions and millions of dollars to clean that site up. If it to be anything other than a refinery, we need to reopen it as a refinery so that we avoid those costs. Uh, reopening the refinery does not take the contamination of that site off the books. And this is a really very alarming argument that, that you know, the, someone is, is making a public appeal to – through the media – uh, probably hoping probably to influence the judge's decision on the 6th, saying, you know, reopen the refinery, right? So we can avoid all these contamination issues because if it's a, if it's a refinery, we can still kind of dirty things up. Uh, the problem with that logic is that when that refinery inevitably shuts down, either in a few years because it's in bankruptcy again or in a decade or two because the policy regimes have changed so much that we no longer are dependent on fossil fuels, when that... When that uh, refinery closes down inevitably, that contaminated land will remain and that liability will remain. And for people to act as if I'm going to work five more years, I'm going to work 10 more years, I'm going to pull profits out again for one more version of this company before the next bankruptcy and then I'm gone and the can contamination remains, that is a misleading, erroneous, and frankly, a little too revealing an argument about what this is really all about. This is short-sighted about the limited interests of a few and really turns its back on the broader interests in the longer run of the city, its residences, and its businesses. Well, what you're saying recalls to my mind uh, the work of one of our colleagues, Christina Simeone, who during the second to last bankruptcy that this refinery went through in 2018, did extensive research on the market, on the status of the refinery, and basically came up to the conclusion that by 2022, the refinery in any event would be back in bankruptcy again. So we're not even talking five or 10 years under that scenario, right? right, right, right. So, so let me ask you this. So you have called PES, Philadelphia Energy Solutions, a microcosm for the transition from fossil to clean energy. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think, you know, what, what the PES story uh, really brings together is all of the competing dimensions, right? We, we, have, we have the energy transition. We often denote that 
or modify the energy transition, you know, with adjectives like we need a just and efficient transition, right? We need to think about people who are losing jobs. We need to, and not just about people who are gaining jobs. We need to think about how to accelerate our transition quickly for a variety of reasons. Some of them have to do with climate change, but a lot of them have to do with competitive advantage in a world where uh, the people who get there first in the developing, development of technologies and supply chains around clean energy are going to dominate the energy economy of the, next, of the coming century. Um, so there's, you know, there's lots of reasons to have a just and efficient energy transition. But that transition doesn't just go from nowhere to solar panels, right? Especially in the United States, especially in a place like Philadelphia, the green energy transition is really a brown to green energy transition. And we have to think about how we finance and plan and train people in that context. And, and there's a very specific example for, exa uh, for this that, again, the PES refinery story shows a light, shines a light on, which is that, you know, in this bankruptcy auction process, which, you know, is never the best way, right? It's never really the best way to think about big policy decisions, right? It's about, it's a court of equity. It's about getting people their money, right? And so, but still in this process, we had an illustration of this dynamic. You can raise money for, uh, for m things with market prices, Right, you can raise money for an oil refinery, you can raise money for new logistics at a repurposed old refinery site, like Hilco may have in mind. You can raise money for things you know that that pay a price in the market. We can't raise money for things that don't have a market price. So, because we don't have, for example, a market price on pollution and we don't have a market price on CO2 greenhouse gas emissions, the true full value of what, say, Hillco could do with that site is not just the value of putting some warehouses and connecting them to the amazing infrastructure at that site, but the full value of that is also suppressing 20% of the city's greenhouse gas emissions every year, right? At $50 a ton, that is hundreds of, which is, you know, kind of a standard working price for the true value of an emitted ton, metric ton of CO2 equivalent into the atmosphere, right? Uh, at, at, you know, Hill, Hillco it can't receive in the marketplace the real value of their devoting a clean, green activity, certainly not the refinery, on that site, they can't get paid for it. And because they can't get paid for it, they can't raise money for it. But the real value of that site is hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars more than what the auction price can raise so what it really also illustrates is we need ways of financing the brown to green energy transition that recognizes when we, when we pull back from brown activities that are polluting and are generating emissions, that are generating climate change impacts, that are making places like Florida uninsurable, that when we make that, we're creating value. 
when we move from green and not just uh, from brown and not just to green. We're creating value when we move from brown and we need to be able to finance that. So there are a lot of mechanisms that are under development now. A carbon tax is one thing. If, they, if there was a price on carbon emissions, then, you know, the market would kind of work. But, but we're kind of tired waiting for, you know, big carbon tax moves by governments. So there are other kinds of mechanisms that are, uh, that are generating now. Green bonds, green loans. There are now um, financial facilities, investment facilities that will do things like this. Uh, they will – you can borrow money and pay it back to people who have lent it to you. Uh, if you, uh, if you uh, pursue a green activity – the greener that activity, the more emissions you reduce from what you're doing with the money you've borrowed, the lower your interest rate is, mm-hmm. right? So there are all kinds of new products that are coming on. States have green bond financing. New York, California, Pennsylvania, unfortunately, does not have one. If it had, Hilco probably would have been able to raise its bid by several uh, Many millions of dollars, right? Because there would have been access to a green bond financing mechanism that because of would the value have, of that carbon abatement that would have recognized the reduction or the abatement of the carbon and also the air and water pollution that happens at the site. So, you know, all of these mechanisms, unless we recognize, and, and that's why the PES refinery is such a teaching moment, recognize the complexity on the ground, you know, where real people are both feeling costs and benefits and making decisions until we figure out ways to actually monetize some of that transition so that we can finance these moves. It'll never be just, it'll never be efficient. It'll never be fast enough. So some of the work of the climate center actually is about thinking through what these mechanisms, their design, their implementation, kind of trying to, you know, build understanding and public education around the importance of, really paying attention to the details of how you implement a brown to green energy transition. Let's play around for a moment, if you don't mind, with one of the possible future uses of the site. Now, again, uh, Hilco has not announced any specific plans yet, but as you mentioned earlier, the PES site has immediate access to major highways, waterways and railroads. Yet as a site that would be full of trains and trucks and ships, there'd be a lot of air pollution continuing the problem that came with the refinery. So so running with this model for a moment, which is one potential outcome or part of a package of potential outcomes, how does Philadelphia address the pollution that has been such a problem for its South Philadelphia communities? One of the nice things about uh, transportation is that it is starting to connect with the power sector, the electricity sector, uh, that has proven to be one of the easier of the sectors to decarbonize, one of the easier of the parts of the economy to, to decarbonize, to lower its greenhouse gas footprint. Uh, as we move from, from uh, oil and coal and natural gas generation of electricity and towards wind and uh, solar and other uh, technologies, um, electricity is becoming relatively clean. And so now transportation, which has long relied on fossil fuels, uh, liquid fuels, uh, to, to power the transportation sector, that's why there's so much attention now on electrifying transportation, because now we'll move from 
very dirty energy source to very clean. And the, um, so there are solutions, actually, to, that can kind of help deal with uh, some of the, say, the trucking uh, that might uh, be associated with a logistics site that Hilco may slowly de- or quickly uh, develop uh, at the former refinery site. So that you could imagine uh, electric trucks, um, even dedicated highways that are focused on um, uh, electric vehicles. You can also imagine... Um, Different kinds of uh, – there's a, a scholar at, uh, at the Climate Center named Steve Vichelli that has looked at the notion of uh, truck ports. It says, you know, we use the same truck to, to, to uh, drive all the way across country and all the way through town to make that final delivery. You know, we use the same truck or the same kind of truck. And it's extremely inefficient, right? Very different kinds of vehicles um, are best suited for local deliveries of start and stop and smaller streets and slower speeds than the kinds of things that move at great consistent speed across long distances. So he's kind of started to think about ways we might build truck ports, you know, that uh, where you change, you move the product from one kind of truck to another kind of truck. So any logistics activities at that at that location could be an early version version of that kind of technology, right? Where uh, if you're going to be spending time in local traffic, you're in a very, you're an electric and probably much smaller kind of vehicle. Uh, if you're on the highway, you're on a very different kind. So, you know, there's lots of exciting possibilities, you know, when we're, when we get out from under the narrow range of options that incumbent legacy plants and sectors confine and define for us and we kind of break out of that uh there's so many more possibilities and it's possibility with a future let me ask you one more question specific to philadelphia so what power does the city have to shape the future of the ps site obviously the auction was a private auction the site is privately owned and it will continue to be privately owned the city cannot mandate what happens there, but obviously the city has a, a, a very large vested interest. What tools are at its disposal? Probably the most important tool that Philadelphia or any city in the United States has at its disposal is its jurisdiction over the regulation and planning of land use, right? So that this is what people will recognize as zoning, right? So that zoning consists of a set of physical considerations, but also a set of use considerations. And typically when use changes, uh, it triggers the need for a new permit that the city can issue or not. Uh, And these permits can be highly regulated and highly restrictive. Uh, And so you know, and and the both the zoning map and the underlying land use plan and the exercise of the permitting power are all in connection, are all aligned with the city's policy goals. Cities have the right, the power, in fact, the obligation to well regulate and manage the operation of the land market inside their borders. And this has, by longstanding agreement, uh, been a, a, an active, appropriate use on the part of, uh, of cities in the United States. And so um, thinking about the future vision of that site um, 
the city has a lot of jurisdiction to kind of guide the kinds of uses and activities that um, that ultimately happen there. Uh, another thing that ha- that is very specific to Philadelphia is that Philadelphia, because of some very early legislative work in the city. Um, back at the beginning, early years of the 20th century, Philadelphia actually has quite a bit of power to regulate uh, air quality. And of course, one of the things that we've talked about in this in this conversation has been the the uh, air quality, the negative air quality impacts of the refineries' operations. Um, and so, it would you know it is within the city's jurisdiction to revisit its standards for air quality. Uh, around a whole array of emissions, right? Um, and, and also to regulate the use of dangerous chemicals, to take it all the way back to your introduction, uh, the use of dangerous chemicals like HF, like hydrofluoric acid that can be gasified into hydrogen fluoride, uh, which, you know, uh, covers 2% of your body and kills you, um, is, uh, is well within, you know, it, Philadelphia's specific powers uh, because of some legislation uh, from the 1950s. So uh, that, that at the state that specifically uh, guarantees the right of cities uh, to set their own standards. So, you know, we've also happened to have, we're fortunate in Philadelphia to have some, you know, some really very powerful tools. Uh, but the most powerful is probably the, the ability to regulate land use. And um, that's something that all U.S. cities have in common. And will I think, both bankruptcy and those kinds of zoning decisions are going to be increasingly important uh, in the United States over the coming decades. A lot of the stress and strain on older energy activities is going to lead to bankruptcies. And watching, learning from the PES experience um, and understanding how cities can participate to some extent or, and other interests as well. I mean, the judge in defining this process early in the process last fall said it was legitimate that community concerns be represented in this process. And that's some pretty interesting, you know, word, those are some pretty interesting words from the bench of a bankruptcy judge. Um, and I think, you know, we may be seeing, we may be seeing what happens when those concerns are actually admitted to the, you know, the bankruptcy bar um, in Philadelphia right now and next week. Yeah, but we'll be waiting to see what happens on February the 6th. Yes. Mark, thanks very much for talking. Thanks, Andy. My pleasure. Today's guest has been Dr. Mark Allen Hughes, founding faculty director of the Climate Center for Energy Policy. Check out the Climate Center's website for more energy policy news, opinions, and research, and for a listing of our upcoming events. Our web address is climateenergy.upenn.edu, and our Twitter feed is at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.